and mend would like to wish all of our listeners Ramadan Mubarak. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept all of our fasts and prayers during this blessed month. Our esteemed guest on this week's Muslim Voices podcast is the UK's first female Sharia Council judge, Dr. Amra Bone. She taught English and mathematics and also served as a head teacher. She has a master's and a doctorate in Islamic sciences from the University of Birmingham and sits on the panel of Sharia Council at Birmingham Central Mosque, where her job entails serving rules on Islamic divorce hearings. She's also advised on a number of government reports and is a regular contributor on radio and television programs. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Amra Bone. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. What circumstances have led to you becoming the UK's first female Sharia judge? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I, I wasn't actually looking for any sort of position as such. I remember doing a research project which allowed me to go into the community and speak to the various community leaders. And uh, I, I remember going to Birmingham uh, Central Mosque as well and um, speaking to the director there. And I was pleasantly surprised at how open-minded he was. And then we just ended up having a, um, sort of a, a long discussion on women and rights of Muslim women and so on and so forth. And, and it was shortly after Perhaps a few months later, I received a call from him asking me to send him my CV. And, um, and then after that, I was asked to be part of the, the panel, um, the, the Shri Council panel of judges. And uh, subhanAllah, I, I you know, thought that was a great responsibility. And then I discussed it with my family, my husband, and uh, I think one of the things that I sort of recall is what he said was, just imagine, if you don't, who might? <laughs> and um, and he, he, he was saying to me that you have the knowledge and the skills and think I think you should go for it. And then um, I, I sort of evaluated all of that and thinking it is important, that, you know, for women to be part of the Shia Council. So, um, and the la- and that, that, that's really how I joined the panel. MashaAllah, that's very inspirational to see that it was actually a brother who inspired you, encouraged you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it was, I mean, of course, because you're, you are, um, you're going to be dealing with very serious matter and you're going to be making decisions uh, on people's lives and and you know you worry and and it's it's a, it's a huge uh, responsibility and a burden and and uh, but at the same time i remember that if allah blesses you with knowledge and you have the ability then then you should take that responsibility seriously take um because if Allah gives you knowledge, Allah gives you responsibility. So that's how I sort of weighed up um, in my own mind whether I should do it or not. And is there a hadith on the potential reward of a judge who judges with justice? Absolutely. I mean, there's a wonderful hadith that talks about Prophet that a judge who makes an, um, a decision um, gets it wrong and still gets a reward. But someone who makes a decision and then 
you know, gets it correct, gets a double reward. So it, it's all uh, to do with your uh, endeavors and your intention to arrive at the right solution. But you can't, you can't know if you have arrived at the right solution. So um, you, all you're doing is trying to do your best. So this is disregarded as a rewardable act. But inshallah, when we are um, working together as a panel, then we sort of balance each other's views, opinions. And that definitely helps. Well, Masha'Allah, I think that's a lesson to actually see that there are all fears in every aspect of life, every decision that you make, every job that you go to take. But it's actually sometimes having the confidence to say, I have the right intentions, Inshallah. I'm going to try to do the right thing. So trust in the mercy of Allah and thinking about the potential reward. Yes, in terms of looking at the the bigger picture, the looking at our, uh, our society and um, how we how we work in terms of the, those um, panels that we have, and you know, so often I've heard from people that oh, you know, all we have is all these bearded guys, um, men sitting in those panels, what that they don't necessarily understand the situation, and so that that's something that played on my mind in the sense that it's not that they don't necessarily understand but um it's you know having that understanding of your context your uh, society um different languages uh, and so on that really truly helps to be part of something like that and be able to try and do justice so for someone not familiar with the sharia council um could you please outline what its purpose is we have a civil law um, which deals with the legal side of things um, and uh, people who have marriages who are, are not, um, whose marriages aren't registered, they, um, they have really no recourse to civil law. So um, uh, if they have a nikah, then they come, if they want to dissolve it, then they come to the Shia Council to do so. And um, so um, the purpose of it is really to try and help people. Shia Councils or voluntary bodies um, came into existence initially particularly to help women come out of uh, um, abusive marriages and to try and um, help them, particularly where I am at the Birmingham uh, Central Mosque, we didn't actually have a shirt council there. People used to go down to London, and uh, but we had so many women who wanted to coach us. And we, um, and the, the I wasn't involved at the time. There was a lady uh, who was um, a doctor, um, a medical doctor who um, had a, a clinic on Saturdays, and um, women would come to her um, and ask her, you know, so many questions. But but then. Then when he came to um, dissolving of marriages, she wasn't able to do anything. So she asked the director, can we do something about it? And because we're having so many cases from around the Midlands um, and also from the north, the director of the mosque at the time decided that they were going to set up a council to, to help the um, women in particular. So the reason really was to make women's lives easier. And the kinds of rulings, I mean... It's largely dealing with divorce. Uh, most of the Shia councils are largely dealing with divorces. They are contacted for, you know, people may have all sorts of questions. Um, I mean, I've been contacted um, so much on just sort of general questions in Islam as well. Sometimes our opinions aren't the same. And then we try and help people as much as we can. Could you describe the kind of warnings that it makes? Well, um, we when it comes to divorce, we have 
uh, we have talak, we have khula, uh, and then we have uh, fast or tafriq. Now, um, the, these uh, people can come to us, say, you know, it can be sometimes a, a male who's asking, um, they've given talaq to their wife already, but they don't have any proof of it, or if he's going to marry again, then uh, the future perspective wife, family are looking for some sort of evidence. So he comes along and he wants to have a talaq certificate. Um, women also approach us, um, they, they come... They think they're coming for hula, but it's not always hula because usually hula requires a, an agreement of the husband. So the third method, which is which is fast for free, um, which is the dissolution of the marriage by separating the parties, is the one we often use. That method is particularly used to uh, dissolve marriages because um, in many, many cases, husband isn't in agreement. Uh, I mean, he would often come and plead and say, he wants this marriage to continue, but the wife's absolutely adamant that she didn't want to. So those are the those are the, the majority of our cases. Could you explain the difference between the latter two? As, uh, you mean khula and um, uh, fas? Yeah. yeah. Um, khula is the when a wife actually asks her husband um, to divorce her, and um, and they can together they can come to some form of agreement, uh, financial or otherwise. That so they um agree to to part ways but the the final the third method which is first called the free is to do with when both when there is no agreement they can't they haven't been able to come to an agreement then they approach a sharia council uh, or she approaches a sharia council uh, to um have a marriage dissolved and it's not always that she approaches the sharia council that she wants to have her marriage dissolved but sometimes she uses it the Sharia Council to give him a warning. Oh, Subhanallah, in what way? Well, she's she's basically telling him, if you don't get your act together, I'm going and I'm going to um, separate from you. I'm going to finish this marriage. And um, so um, we've had women who told us that and then they've gone away with without getting divorced because um, her husband is now, you know, working with her rather than not. And are these rulings that you make legally binding? No. Um, uh, Sharia Council is voluntary, therefore those um, rulings cannot be legally binding. A Muslim comes to the Council um, with their own um, sincere um, um, sort of wishes, wanting to uh, do the right thing in the sight of Allah. And it's basically, it, it, it's upon their own conscience that they are, they are coming to do the right thing. So legally, because they're not legal bodies, um, they're not binding. Um, so the only, whatever is binding is what, when a person takes it upon himself, herself to say, this is, I'm going to do this, and this is the right thing for me to do in the sight of Allah. That's how it works. But is it legally binding? Well, Islamically binding. How um, this this is a this is a good question. When a person comes and fills the form, they are saying they're taking upon themselves that there's nobody forcing them. Um, the Sharia Council can't force them to do that. They are coming um, voluntarily, saying that they when they fill a form, they're going to that whatever decision is made, they will honour that. So, 
um, it, it's if you know when they're fully informed, they uh, they're not going to you know give us any false information. If they do, it will not be um, valid at all. Uh, the decision that is received at the end of the day, if it, if they've lied or are not being truthful, um, so Islamically binding can if they them, allow themselves. To, for it to be binding upon themselves, because we cannot bind, because we this is not um, a body which is supported by the state. Uh, in fact, we are not. Uh, it's not a Muslim country, so um, it's not going to happen. Um, if you are in a Muslim country, you know, and these bodies are supported and um, working with the state, then that's a different matter. Okay, Mashallah, that's interesting to know. So, yeah. if there was a situation where one of the spouses, so say for argument's sake, um, as you said, a wife comes and applies um, for uh, a divorce, and the she then is signing the consent form that to tell the truth and to be to abide by a decision made, the ruling. Yeah. If the uh, husband, for example, doesn't return the form, doesn't sign it. Right. Um, yes, we've had um, cases where a man says, "I'm not." I'm not bound by this. Um, I don't agree with it. She'd been um, abandoned for many years in many cases, in some cases. Uh, you know, we, we've had people who've been separated for 10 years, in other cases, eight years, five years, six years. There has to be a limit. A man cannot just leave her hanging on. That is prohibited in Islam. Either you live together in harmony or you part ways. And that's the Quranic teaching very clearly that you, the purpose of marriage is come together, get to love, trust, compassion. And if those ingredients are missing, then two parties either have to come together and try to resolve it themselves. But if they're unable to do so, um, a woman who is suffering, she has to do something about it. And that's where we come in. What have been the main criticisms of Sharia councils by the mainstream media and how do you respond to these? Well, the, the main criticism is that they don't understand what Sharia is all about. Um, the word Sharia itself has really quite negative connotations among many people and particularly in our society, it's not really understood. So, so the, the criticism begins as soon as you hear the word Sharia. I've done um, a number of interviews uh, for different channels, BBC, Channel 4 and Radio 4. And in, in most of these interviews, I've had to explain what Sharia is but because people don't understand. They think it's something that's set in stone and, um, you know, it belongs to a different age and we're trying to practice it over here. What they don't understand is that Islam is not monolithic. Sharia isn't monolithic. It is very dynamic. It has principles, but it has uh, what we call fiqh, which is an understanding, which is very in, uh, dependent on what we call hakika in in um, Arabic, your reality, uh, and without understanding your reality, your context, you can't give rulings. And I think me personally, one of the um, most misunderstood things uh, about Sharia councils is that they think of them as being very, um, you know, in favour of males. And I think it's quite ironic that you mentioned earlier that that's actually the purpose. That it was set up. It's actually for women. Yes, I think you know that there's the, some people would always highlight uh, cases you know, where women have had issues, but there's a huge number of cases where women are very happy and they move on. But those aren't the cases you hear about. You know, good news don't make news. So uh, people normally hear uh, in the media of cases that are 
when women are not happy. And uh, I cannot speak for all the councils within Britain. Unfortunately, we do have people who cannot contextualise Islam within our society. They don't. So I'm unfortunate that we we have people who studied Islam who've, uh, um, but somehow they they don't have that ability to be analytical and really truly see it. Um, how would they apply that sort of understanding of a scholar sort of a thousand years ago or, or even five hundred years ago in our society? You you have to understand their methodology. Um, according to their context, and then look at our own context. We, we live in a context where women aren't totally dependent on men. A lot of cases we have where women say to us, well, he's never supported me. Um, I've always earned my, myself. I've um, looked after the family. Why do I need him? When in a society where women are, you know, financial earners, they are supporters um, of, of children, we have to understand our context, so we cannot sort of um, take rulings of the past and apply them wholesale. Um, we have to be able to analyse their understanding and why would would they make such a ruling and and look at our own society and then look at the the role of women within that within the society we live in. And I think sometimes uh, you know when we hear of cases where women aren't being treated equally. Um, I don't mean literally equally. There has to be equity. Some is based on equity. Absolutely, because equity is to treat two different people justly despite their differences. Absolutely. So why are there so few female members on the UK Shire Council and why is it important that there are more? I think women are involved in Sharia councils. They are helping. There are women who are um, sort of part of the, the councils uh, as lawyers who are English lawyers and women are helping in terms of um, administrative work or they, they're um, helping in terms of counselling, they're helping um, in, in terms of mediation and so on. But in terms of being on the panel, uh, I mean, um, we do have people who do not believe women should be on the panel, uh, unfortunately. Um, but um, they they have that understanding theologically that they think women shouldn't be on the panel. But there are, of course, people who see, see there's no bar for women to be on the panel. So that we, we have that difference of opinion. And uh, sometimes, in fact, even women will say the same thing. So um, to have women on the panel, they have to have that high level of knowledge, really quite high level of understanding of Islamic Sharia principles and, uh, and its branches. And um, not only that, to, to have um, understanding of uh, your context and having um, knowledge of different languages, particularly Arabic language, it does require quite broad knowledge. Um, and women have to be interested to be part of that as well. I wouldn't say that the women have necessarily been discriminated against to be on the panel, but I think it's going to take time. What qualifications and experience would a Muslim need to become a Sharia judge? I, I think that we, we need to have um, qualifications. It's not just traditional um, qualifications. We, we have got um, Darul Ulums, but many of these Darul Ulums are not uh, very critical in, in the way they teach that. That having a um, very critical mind is very important. So, which I think a person develops when they have higher 
sort of qualifications of like masters and particularly PhD, which is it is very um, I think important to to have higher level of qualifications. And we have people who I mean the, the chef we have he's got a um, a degree in, in in law as well as I mean he's from India. He has a degree in law and also he's done a traditional course in Darul Alum, which was in India. Uh, for seven years. Myself, I mean, I've got a doctorate in Islamic sciences and, and my master's, but in master's you have quite broad so the historical development of Islamic religious thought. Uh, how did the, the Islamic theologies, you know, we don't have one theology, we don't have one jurisprudence. Not many people are even familiar with the fact that officially we have eight schools of thought. Uh, schools of jurisprudence that are presently recognized in the world, which was back in 2004. There was a conference uh, in Amman in Jordan where um, was it around 200 scholars from around the world came and um, around sort of from 50 countries and decided that was the case. And many of us are not even familiar with that. We just think, okay, we've got four Sunni schools of um, law. So to, to have that broader understanding of different schools of law, um, understanding of your uh, society. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough on, on having um, a higher level of knowledge and a higher uh, qualification. Many people that I've come across who've studied in Darul Zip, they have studied in one school of thought, like Hanafi school of thought, uh, for example, um, then they are not necessarily even familiar with the views of um, Maliki school or uh, Shafi school. It, it's difficult for them to to really be part of the panel when they um, when we have people from all really literally from all different backgrounds, all different uh, sort of countries. Uh, we we actually see people from Somalia to Yemen, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, English Muslims, you know, huge range. We even have cases, Peter Shia, uh, who, who approach us as well, knowingly this is a Sunni council. Really very, very important to have that broader understanding, broader knowledge, because I have come across people who, uh, women as well as men, who... I have studied in in Darulums, but yet they don't have that broader understanding or, or analytical um, way of dealing with things, um, and being able to, you know, have that that we've got uh, cases of the past, and how do we apply them, learn from them, to be able to deal with cases that we have today. I understand that 90% of cases for the UK Sharia Council are made by women and almost all of these involve divorce. Why is there such a need for the Sharia Council to make these rulings? Well, if there were no Sharia Councils, where would women go who have been left hanging on, um, uh, you know, either abandoned or um, they, they don't feel married or divorced? This is, this is in fact sinful. Islamically, it's sinful. You cannot leave um, a woman in that state. Um, a man can, I mean, in many cases that we receive, a man moves on, he's actually gone and got married again and are leading a new happy life. Whereas the wife, uh, it, it has no real contact with him and she is on her own supporting the children. And so where is her happiness? So Sharia councils are needed and we do need to um, dissolve those marriages, which are in fact not functioning as marriages at all. 
also sometimes it's not understood that women would be suffering a lot and have been suffering um, when we don't provide ways and means of dealing with those problems. And Muslim society has a duty to help people in the communities. That's why I think these rulings are direly needed. MashaAllah, you've written several journals on marriage and divorce. What are the primary misconceptions about divorce in Islam? Lots of people think men have it easy and women have to struggle and poor women, they have to go through so much. What they don't understand is that Islam is, is, is a very just and a beautiful um, way of life, but only if we understood it properly. The misconceptions are a man can say, I divorce you and go off and that's it. And a woman would have to close the share council. But divorce is, is, is um, an, an English word, but when we say divorce, sometimes we just equate it to talaq. In, in Islam, we have different forms and methods of divorce. People think that when man has said talaq, that's it. No, he has he has initiated the process because they're not a divorce. Because when he says talaq, it's next three menstrual cycles for a woman, and she's during that period they can get back together, and there has to be no remarriage. Therefore, it's not all finished. Um, I'll come back to three talaq which is different, the rulings on that are, are different. But it, the way it should be done is a, a one talaq, basically. Uh, a man should say only one talaq, and one talaq means that they can come back together without a remarriage, the next three menstrual cycles. Um, if they decide, both parties decide that they're going to get back together, and that's fine, but if they decide they're not going to, or a woman says, I'm not, I don't want to go back, um, and so the, the, this is um, uh, when a man says talaq, and when a woman says uh, that I want to be divorced, is that she discusses it with her husband. Now, we have to understand that in Islam, it's a man taking on all the financial responsibility to see um, uh, when, when they get married. He's the one who's giving her a gift, and that gift is often taken very lightly. Um, um and in not in it uh, actually happens mostly uh, among Pakistanis that they have very nominal amounts, but when you have people from the Arab world, women have substantial amount um people from Bangladesh as well have quite substantial amounts, so it means something so when a man says, "I'll give you talaq then um he can't have anything back at all, so he lost out. And the reason, uh, so particularly women from Pakistani background, um, because they 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 have no, um, their mahar is literally nothing. Uh, sometimes it's like you know, a hundred pounds or something. It doesn't mean anything. So my man says a lot, and she feels really there is you know nothing and often if he ends up saying three talaqs and if you happen to be a Hanafi school of thought then you say that's finished and they can't get together unless she happens to marry someone else and that other husband um things don't get go right and then he happens to tell them and get them back together but there is no it's not like what you hear is halala there's no such thing as a method of halala it's just naturally happens to marry somebody else there's a divorce then they can marry again but this this understanding that that you can't or people often say three talaq that one in one go is regarded as sinful but um among um in in it, it's regarded also regarded as valid um in sunni schools of thought so 
there's the Ahle Hadith school of thought, which says, no, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you say it, if it's said in one sitting, then it, um, then it's one talaq. Um, so of course we have a different views among our society, among different communities, and that could cause a lot of problems and issues. And, um, and that's why, you know, people end up thinking, um, a man can do this and a woman uh, can't. I, I think a, um, a woman needs to really understand her own rights. In the Islamic contracts, if, I mean, one of the good contracts I've found um, is, is the one which is the 1967 family audience, family law um, marriage contract. Um, and that has about 25 clauses in it. Um, and that that's used by Bangladesh and Pakistan because it was um, before when it, when it came into existence, Bangladesh and Pakistan were one country. But if you actually look at our nikahs in Britain, those uh, don't have civil marriage um, are so simple that there's hardly anything on those contracts. And so women are not using their rights of collect the free. They're not using their rights to, to put conditions in the contract. Um, so, of course, when it comes to divorce, they lose out. It, 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 both work together. Marriage, what sort of contract you have and, and how you can be divorced can be also stipulated within the contract. So women have so many rights they're not even aware of and themselves. And then in the end, they themselves sometimes think, oh, no, Islam's not fair to us. But we need to learn and understand that Islam is fair and is just, but we need to know what our rights are. And so women can have it stipulated that she would have a similar right to the man the talaq if, you know, a man is aware of it because he's the only one who's giving her a gift. And if it's a substantial gift, then he will say he's knowingly accepting that he's not going to want anything back or he's not, um, if she chooses to divorce him in the same way as he can. So I think that it's not as straightforward as people make it out to be. Um, the, the law of uh, divorce in Islam is... It's a little complicated, but both parties um, have uh, rights and um, they're equitable, but we only need to understand them. That's very interesting because, as you said, I think how are we expecting people who have no knowledge of Islam whatsoever to understand the the details about uh, talaq in Islam if we ourselves don't have that much knowledge on it? And as you said, a lot of sisters don't realise they have so many rights. It's very unknown, actually, that you can ask for the equal rights of divorce, or is it how how would that be phrased? Yes, yeah, it's uh, it's um, the, before marriage, they she can negotiate that with her husband in a part of marriage contract. But then, because it'll be a part of marriage contract, he's aware because if he gives a talaq to her, he loses all the right, all his rights in terms of any anything he's given to her gift. Mahar, everything. So he's basically, when he's saying he's giving talaq, he doesn't get that. Now, if she chooses to give him talaq, and if it's not his fault, if, uh, then, you know, and he wasn't in the contract, then why should he suffer? Because a woman can turn around, marry this man, take his money, run off, and marry another man, take his money, and run off, because she's not having to give any anything at the time of marriage. That's, it's a part of Islamic marriage contract. A man gives a gift, a free gift to his wife. Now, the system is balanced, but people, you know, don't understand it because if he has, he, it's not his fault and she chooses and she wants to just leave him because she somehow um, has an issue or a problem or she doesn't like him and Islam has no court divorce. Um, 
she can move on, but then that has to be negotiated. What sort of mahar and, uh, was given, then that could be a part, part of the discussions. Uh, if a man was aware that, that he, he's making a contract with her and he's allowing her to have the same right as him, even though she's not giving him anything, um, uh, then it's all done up front and um, he's aware of it and she can do that. But she needs to know that, it, or she wants to do that. If she doesn't want to do that, that's also fine. But that uh, sort of form of divorce is available to her within the Islamic contract of marriage. Is that agreed upon across the schools of thought or is there a difference of opinion? As far as I'm aware, it, it, it is in most schools of thought. But maybe, possibly in in minority, it's just not agreed upon. But most Sunni schools have thought it's agreed upon. But we, as you as you know, the that we have Ahl Hadith, um, uh, we have the the four main schools, which is, which is Maliki, Hanbali, Shafi, and um, Hanafi. Um, and most of those schools that it's, it's, it's accepted. But when you come out of that, when you have the Ahl Hadith school, um, and, um, uh, Salafi schools, because they, um, they say Quran and Sunnah, I mean, all those schools are following Quran and Sunnah, although originally Ahl Hadith school of thought is based, um, or the Salafi school comes from um, the background is humbly, but obviously uh, we have now um, uh, in in many areas they don't necessarily agree. But to give you an example of the three talaq, now the hadith school uh, of thought is that no matter how many times it's said, it's only one. Only one is taken as one. You can say a thousand times in one sitting, but it's still taken as one. So they they don't have. They don't agree on. Um, uh, they don't. They don't uh, agree that uh, this is uh, saying three talaq is valid at all in one go. That's completely no. Whereas the, the four Sunni schools of thought do say it, it's valid, but sinful, and you know, therefore it's preferable to only say talaq once because that's just valid. So we have what we try and do is we try and. Um, look at each case um, uh, separately. We look at uh, the knowledge of the person involved. Were they just saying three talaqs because that's what they heard on um, on some sort of um, Bollywood movie or or you know um, a Pakistani drama where they pronounce these talaqs and they and we do actually get people who think that in order for the talaq to be valid, they have to say three times. So unfortunately, we there is a lot of misunderstanding, um, and if those who um, I've heard from uh, Hadith school of thought, they they don't agree with the other side at all, and they say, um, you know, that's totally wrong. Um, the, the three talaks uh, in one sitting is totally wrong. We're not going to accept it at all. That's it, and and almost. But I think what we have to do is we have to acknowledge at least that they exist. We have these. Uh, opinions exist in different schools of thought and try and deal with it um, on, you know, on, on its own merit and, and looking at the case itself, looking at the people, their understanding, their knowledge and then try to come to a decision. But if we just totally sort of disregard and say, well, just because in my school I only agree to disregard the other one and it's not valid and it's not, I don't agree with it, but that's not how we can work. Uh, in Islamic law, Islamic law has diversity, and we need to understand uh, where people are coming from. And then we we are very inclusive in our Sharia council. What rights do women have when they find themselves in a difficult marriage? 
they find themselves in a difficult marriage, they have the right to speak to their husband um, and, and uh, say things aren't working. Let's stand together and talk about it and see uh, how we can move move on um, uh, in Islam it's you know important that there is some form of mediation if from both sides um, if they can't work things out together on their own they can involve their families um, if that can't be done then a woman can approach the Shia council and what rights do women have in terms of getting custody of their children um, from a from a Shia council perspective we don't deal with um, custody side of things because that is left to the law of the land um, in Islam um, both parties have rights including especially when children are young um, majority of schools say uh, uh, they stay with the mother um, and uh, so in terms of uh, rights and custody they're left in Islam it's actually very similar to um, the law of the land in Britain um, we have it should be based upon the fact that whatever is in the best interest of the child and so that's how things are looked upon from an Islamic angle and also looked upon uh, from the um, the English law perspective as well now we don't deal with it. We can't. We cannot deal with that. With that uh, side of things in Britain, uh, the law um, has precedence. They have to deal with the custody of the children. Why do you think that the rate of unsuccessful Muslim marriages is increasing? I don't think people know what they want on a marriage basis. That's my experience, and I don't think even women know what they want from a marriage. I think it's very important for people to know. I mean. You know, Muslims want to get married because it's a sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu Um It's something we should do. He completes half of our deen. All these things are, you know, important for us. But as people, as individuals, what is it we want out of life? Um, I mean, I've heard from so many women, oh, I thought he was a good man, but he's such he's so different. But I, 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 my understanding is that people um, are not, they, they haven't sorted out in their own mind what they want out of life, but what sort of partner they want. Um, I mean, a person could be absolutely sincere and um, really good. But to give you an example, a, a man comes to, to the mother of the girl and he wants to, to, to marry her daughter. And um, they, the girl agrees, they get married and, and so on. And then things begin to go wrong. Um, the girl comes back to her mother and says, Mom, he's so stingy. He doesn't spend hardly any money. He's um, looking for bargains or whatever it might be. It's just not fair. When the mother asks her son-in-law to come and speak, um, she says to him, you know, why are you so stingy? Why don't you spend any money on my daughter? And the man says, well, that's how I am. But, you know, you ask me, do I pray? And yes, I pray. You ask me, do I fast? And I fast. And I do all those things. But you didn't actually ask me if I spend money on things. So it was like, you know, it's a funny example, but you, know, you need to know the character of the person. And it's very important to find out those details about a person, inquire. I mean, it's one time in Islam you can go and inquire, you can find out who his friends are, what who he spends his time with, and so on and so forth. And uh, we need to know the character of the person. The Prophet said, I've come to perfect human character. And he said, I've come 
but only to perfect human characters. The ultimate aim is a Muslim to to have the best of character. And I think sometimes we lose that. We, you know, we, you know, is the girl wearing a scarf? Is is he um, praying? Has he got a long beard or what it might be? We are not concentrating on the character of a person. Um, finding out what sort of person he is, what what do we want out of marriage? You know, um, what our interests? Uh, you know, would my husband support me in my interests, or would you know, and he would want support from her as well? And I think we need to really be very clear in mind: what do we want in life, and what do we want out of this marriage? And I think many marriages are unsuccessful and many are not even getting married i know a huge number of people who are in their 30s even early 40s are not married many many women so that's unfortunate definitely and i think sometimes um the pressure of trying to get married results in some sisters potentially not then looking into issues such as character um as in-depthly as they should because of the rush but the the hadith of the prophet i believe is someone's deen and character is it what uh, a sister should be looking for in a man uh, the, the hadith we have is a person marries for um wealth um a person marries for family beauty and then finally deen um but it's understanding it's how people understand the deen of course the prophet sallallahu alaihi said the per- best person is the one who marries the person for, for their deen but understanding Dean, what does that mean? Does that mean just someone, you know, who, who's doing his five, uh, you know, daily prayers or someone who, uh, which is, of course, obligatory, uh, it's important that person is doing those as well. But, you know, Islam is an ethical way of life. A religion it is broader and, um, and ultimately whatever those pillars of practice are, are um, to make us a better human being, they are not ending themselves, but they mean to an end. And that's what we need to understand. What advice would you give to a Muslim who is thinking about entering into marriage? Um, as I mentioned earlier, know what you want from a person, what sort of man you want. Um, of course, uh, um, don't look for perfection because perfection, I believe, is only exists in, in Jannah. So be realistic and anyone who comes close to what you're looking for in a man, um, you know, um, go for that person, um, person with good character, person who is sincere, um, and um, because you don't need to be worried about him being, you know, can you trust him later or not? If he's sincere with Allah, he will be sincere with you. But also understand that he is a person of good character, and you can try and suss people out through questioning them, talk to them. Um, but I think at the same time, I think people are looking for perfection, and um, too many girls girls are looking for men who are, you know, from my um, experience, are looking men who are cooperative, um, and men who are looking for wives who who will be making sure everything is, you know, done for them. And, and somehow we have this disconnect, you know. And there, is, there have been a number of articles where this problem has been highlighted, both in America and Britain and many, particularly European countries, that um, we we have a lot of women who are getting older and not getting married, while men are getting married younger. My advice would be, to don't be, to, you know, don't look for perfection, Look for a good, honest man who has a good character um, and uh, do a lot of questioning. Do a certain amount, you know, be analytical.
And as you mentioned earlier, um, in regards to the right that the woman has to add conditions in the contract, and what advice would you give her into the type of clauses that she had? I think you mentioned uh, the best marriage contract that you've seen. Yeah, I mean, you can find it online. Um, the, it's, she can add clauses that she doesn't want to be part of a polygamous marriage, for instance. Um, she can also add this, that she wants to have the right of divorce, which is what's called talaq al-tafweed. That man, sort of, it, it not, he, he enables her to have the same right um, in, in the marriage contract. Um, so um, that um, can be negotiated at the beginning. She can negotiate that with him. So those two things are seem to be quite important to, uh, to women like you know they want to have the choice um whether they want to be part of a polygamous marriage or not um and that can be stated within within the contract you mentioned earlier in regard to mahla the dowry um and there being obviously some cultural differences in terms of the amounts that are sometimes stipulated could you just expand a bit about what the the purpose behind the mahar and what advice you would give to sisters in regards to to the dowry in in terms of um the purpose i mean there's some huge discussions on what it is and in the quran it's described as a, as a free gift that man gives to the wife now of course um as you um sort of say there are cultural differences in in how but I mean, the point that I was making earlier, people don't value it. The terms of profit, uh, you know, people would give so many camels uh, to value a woman. You know, it's it was like, you know, but of course, Islam is not um, uh, that a woman should put a burden on 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 a, on a man that she that he can't bear that he can't actually. Um, it, unfortunately, I saw that when I lived in Egypt. Um, um, it was a long time ago, but so many. Um, men are expected to provide um, accommodation, as in provide a flat, provide all the furniture, provide, you know, everything. They spend years and years, uh, you know, raising that kind of money. And by the time they are able to do anything, they're in their 40s. Whereas in a, in a so for example, in Pakistani marriages, the, you know, they end up living in um, extended family and, the, and that demand isn't, you know, great. Um, it's not... It has to be fair and just according to the means of the husband. And if a husband, you know, has a, a, a few millions and he says, oh, he's going to give his wife, you know, thousand pounds for a mahar or two thousand, that doesn't seem according to his means. Similarly, uh, someone who has less amount and a wife demands more then you know, possibly either the marriage isn't going to take place or it's going to take place down 10 years down the line. So it has to be realistic, but it also it's a, it's also described as a sort of a form of independence for the woman. So she doesn't have to beg her money all the time from her husband. So she has her some money. She can possibly do even some form of business with that. Um, she can do something that gives her some sort of independence in that sense. That um, you know, there are so many women are absolutely totally reliant on their husbands, and if things go wrong, then they are sometimes left in, in uh, destitute. Uh, we need to think about these things. Islam is, is a religion of common sense. It's a religion of of aql. You know, in the Quran, it says so many times, "Use your aql." You know, so people sometimes become so um, literal that they don't understand the, the the larger message of the Quran and and the prophetic life. Um, and sometimes you become literal about hadith. The the prophet said, "I leave two things behind: the Quran and Sunnah." Sunnah was his life example. 
Um, and of course, hadith are a part of that. Um, but if we look at sometimes a, a hadith which has been narrated, and, and of course we have this huge science of hadith, um, Hadith science is based largely on Isnad, which is to do with the chains of narration. So what people are, are, are so confused that they don't know what to do. If we, I think, try to t have a framework in, of Islam, it's based on, on the Quran and Sunnah, so, which is Prophet's life example, and which, in, and, and the, it's, it's an ethical framework. Um, and uh, so the Prophet was not someone who would force a woman to do anything or even force her to stay with him, uh, force her to act and behave in a, in a manner. It was, he was a kind, gentle person. And so sometimes we're getting these mixed messages. You know, the Prophet is like that on the one hand, and then we, we find a hadith where uh, it's different. So Islam is a very use your common sense, use apple and, and the mahar. It should be based on, uh, on, on the means of the husband. Um, and it shouldn't mean something. Otherwise, it has, you know, it doesn't have any value. Because if if we put something like I don't know, very small amount, and if a divorce does take place, and if the mahar was small, the 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 in terms of the equity between the two parties is not correct in that sense, because Islam is giving her something and giving him something, and then it's balanced. During the lockdown, the National Domestic Abuse Helpline has reported a 25% increase in calls and online requests. What support and advice is available for someone in this situation? I mean, we, we normally have certain helplines. Uh, there, is a, there is a Muslim Women's Helpline. Um, I think the, because, I mean, Sharia councils don't necessarily um, deal with that unless people come for a particular mar marital issue um, that or dissolving of, uh, of a marriage. The, I, I mean, I, ho I hope we, um, as, as a community, as a society, Muslims in our society, we're doing something about it. Of course, the situation is, is quite unique. We've not had that before. Um, but even generally, we have, um, um, I think it's one in four women are abused and two women die every week um, because of domestic violence, um, often by, by the partners or ex-partners. Um, during lockdown, I, I would feel, um, you know, people when they are living together, um, it can be very difficult. Uh, so I can understand it, perhaps the increase in, in that. But this situation, abuse, rampant in our, in our society as a whole, um, not just, you know, everybody, it, it, it's unfortunate. And this is why the Prophet was emphasizing to men to protect the women, to be kind and gentle and look after them. And that sort of, that value that the Prophet was trying to um, inculcate among Muslim men um, was 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 absolutely brilliant, and unfortunately, um, I, I'm not really aware of a, a, any specific um, help that uh, has been set up lately. Uh, but I think there are general panels of uh, different helplines that we have around um, in, the, in the country. Muslim women's helpline, you know, helpline for the young, and and so on. One of the biggest misconceptions um, about Islam and about Sharia councils is that a woman who is victim of domestic abuse would be forced to stay in that marriage. Yeah, um, that that's what I I I sort of referred to earlier. 
But the Prophet Sallallahu life example does not suggest that at all. So where do we get that from? We have to question that. When the Prophet has had issue with his wives, he gave them the choice, either to stay with him or leave him. And that's what is, is mentioned in the Quran, and that um, you know the Prophet gave them choice to give them a choice. It, Islam is 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 quite clear on that. Marriage is is based on love and compassion. Men and women are garments of each other. Um, they protect each other. They look after each other. Um, so marriage, as a discussion in the Quran, is based on love and. Um, money it's not based on is force a woman would have to unfortunately we do have that impression among certain people that um they um can force a woman to be with them even if she doesn't want to be and it's the way i see the thing is we have got the the statements of the scholars of the past and the way things are, are interpreted or um understood because i think what we have to understand is that Every it, people um, have their own context in their own society. When women were largely dependent on men, um, women were seen as as dependents of um, more like children. You know, you can tell a child off and say you're doing something wrong. Um, you can't do this. You can't do that. It's that sort of language that doesn't is 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 not understood in our society because women are not looked at the same way. Uh, we we have women who are seen as equal partners in marriage. So I think we need to to understand the language of the the time of the past and the language of our time, which I don't think is often understood. That um, it's quite clear from the the, the Islamic teachings that, that there is no there has to be a consent. Both parties come to a marriage with consent, and if one party chooses to withdraw their consent then that marriage breaks down they they feel they can't work together can't live together and it could be a man or a woman both parties have um a right to that i mean yesterday i was invited to talk about intimacy during ramadan and we were talking about how you know a, a man and a woman supposed to come together um in a in a in in, in a physical relationship and the Prophet ﷺ said that a man should not come upon his, his wife as an animal. He should send a messenger. And the question was asked, what is that messenger? And he said, kisses and sweet words. So it just shows that even in a, in a very close relationship, in a physical relationship, a man is supposed to, to behave in a, a beautiful, kind, uh, sweet manner with his wife. How on earth can they live together? Um, by force it doesn't make sense um, a woman is a human being she has right to decide whether she wants to be part of that marriage or not if she's been continuously abused um this is not part of islam um because the prophet the quran in the quran um allah tells us the prophet sallallahu is uswatun hasana the best example for us and he never ever treated any of his wives like that. So we are supposed to follow his sunnah, right? And if we're following his sunnah, how can we behave like that? Just because we have certain interpretations by certain scholars. No, I think this is where we need to get back to our framework. This is why I advise people to, to go back to the life of the Prophet. Study the life of the Prophet himself. That's one of the most important things you can do to understand Islam is how the Prophet 
behaved with his wives, how he behaved generally with people. And this is what the Quran is exhorting us to, to actually follow. He's your best example, follow him. And then what we say, oh, there's this verse or that verse. And the Quran is also saying in, in, in the Quran, Allah is reminding us all the time, take it as a whole. Don't take it in bits, because if you take it in bits, you will lose the overall message of the Quran. So a woman has absolute right in Islam to not live in an abusive marriage. To give you another example, there's a man who used to used to run behind his 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 um, walk behind her wife in the streets, crying and crying and crying, asking her to come back to him. And she had a child with him as well, but she didn't like him. She didn't want to be with him anymore the prophet sort of once tells her that he's you know you you're married he's so besotted with you he wants to be with you and um he's crying following you everywhere on the streets and um and then she asks the prophet are you telling me to stay with me are you commanding me or are you expressing your opinion and the prophet was, was told her he was you know expressing his opinion she says I don't want to be with him. So she would have respected the Prophet if he'd commanded her, or but if he was his opinion, there was no abuse in that marriage, as far as I'm aware. So uh, the, there's another very important hadith. A woman comes to the Prophet وسلم, and she says to him, My husband is ugly. Um, he's a very good man. He, you know, he's he prays and he fasts, he does, you know, he provides, he does everything. Unfortunately, I, I I fear that if I, having embraced Islam, if I continue staying with him, I may end up doing something which I'm supposed to. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, okay, what did, what did he give you? And she, she said, he gave me an orchard. And um, so the Prophet said, return his orchard, because the Prophet knew him personally. That was his only way, livelihood. And so because he wanted to marry her and he gave her the only thing he possessed. So, and then the prophet asked him to just divorce her. Now, in, in the, this case is also reminding us that there isn't, you know, there isn't no fault divorce. Um, in this case, there was not even abuse. But when there is abuse, of course she has every right to be separated. You'd been running a girls' youth club for five years. Um, what did you learn from that experience? I think that, that one of the main things I, I learned from that was that the young girls particularly at the time needed, they needed to, to have um, confidence in themselves. They had to, they, they needed that knowledge of Islam that to, to be confident as, as, as young women. And um, they had, to, and, you know, I'm going back a long time now because that was before I, in fact, uh, started university. And I had to often go to my, you know, girls' homes to ask the parents to allow them to come to the club because they they wouldn't even allow them to to go to to a youth club. Um, in in the youth club, it was girls who would play, you know, sports activities, and then they had the opportunity to discuss their problems and issues. And they had so many problems. Uh, unfortunately, you know, parents want uh, they didn't have knowledge of Islam themselves, so. I think my experience from there was to enable girls to have knowledge of Islam so they become confident, know um, how to, to respond and, and act and in, in, in a way that's, you know, beautiful. Um, but I think we still need to do that today. We need to give them uh, knowledge and to be confident and, 
and um, and not a time. I mean, I've I've come across women who who said who said, look, you know, it's, it's Muslim women who said, look, you know, Islam um, is, is is you know so much easier for a man and it's not favorable to women. And and the thing is because they haven't been given knowledge. Uh, it's not just knowledge because we have got knowledge. We people who are giving her knowledge. She has less rights than a man and and so on. So therefore, we need to understand Islam in in a way that that can empower women. Um, you know, I hear of ex-Muslim women who who express, and most of the time, it's not that the the Islam that that I come to to learn and understand. It's the Islam that. You know, people think that is Islam, which unfortunately given um, given to them from their childhood, they're forced to do certain things. They they're not allowed to do things that the brothers can do, and and then finally a point comes um, when they're forced to to be married, and they leave home, and and, and often many of them choose not to be Muslims. We we need to do a lot of work in our society to help blame um, this framework of Islam, which I've been talking about. That is becomes confused with people who are learning, who have knowledge, and who don't have knowledge. Unfortunately, do you have any advice for someone wanting to set up a similar club? I I, I think it's a great idea. I think it's it's good to have a club where girls can do sports, and they can also have um, an hour and a half now where they can come sit down and talk and 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 discuss their issues and problems, and then you know through that they can learn you know what Islam has to say in those things. And it's it's um sort of interactive um way of of learning rather than sitting in a classroom with books and 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 so on. It's 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 an alternative way, and I don't think it's a really good way to learn um Islam um in that sort of environment. Have you yourself ever encountered any discrimination or prejudice in your life? Who hasn't? <laughs> tell me um i i have i have encountered discrimination and prejudice by all sorts of people muslims non-muslims um you know it, it's been bullied at work um it's, it's something that is part of life and uh, alhamdulillah we um as long as you believe allah is with you and you know no one can harm you even the whole of mankind and jinn got together we have trust in Allah. Allah will protect us, and um, this is the teaching in the Quran. So um, yes, of course, I have encountered, and uh, yes, it can be quite. Uh, people can undermine you. People can, you know, make you feel as if you're nothing. But you know, and Allah knows. Therefore, I don't think we need to worry. What tips could you give our listeners on Ramadan during lockdown? Subhanallah, um, it's good to be in contact through technology, um, talk to each other, um, maybe break, break your fast together. Um, when you are um, breaking your fast, so you feel you are, especially if you're on your own and you don't have any family around you. And many students who have um, been stranded in Britain, they couldn't go back home to other countries. Um, they, um, they're, they're on their own. And some of them have got flatmates that they can break the fast with but others can um uh, you know can join their family or friends online um the t i think it's a great time though to to reflect and uh, sometimes even in ramadan we don't give um enough time um being on our own with allah 
Because it's a time to to develop a relationship with Allah, uh, to connect with Allah through through doing straining ourselves in things that we indulge in, of, of you know whether it's too much food or, or going to the gym or doing all sorts of things. And it's it's a time to 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 it's a, you know Allah has given us the opportunity to do more itikaf, um, be with Allah, and you know develop that relationship that we direly need. I would say is is yes. You need time to connect with your friends. Um, um, technology is great. Use Zoom, Google Hangout, um, all these various ways of connecting with each other. Um, at the same time, you know, cherish this time. Um, and really reflect on what you have done in your life and where you're going and where you're at. Um, and, and how we can be better human beings because Ramadan is a reminder every year and an opportunity to, to reform, to do, um, develop habits because it takes 21 days to develop a habit. So this is time. It's, it's a whole month. We can develop habits that are going to be good for us and hopefully last us until next Ramadan. Use this time and cherish it and, you know, um, develop habits of learning the Quran, for example. So I'm going to assign myself a full hour to sit and, and read and reflect on the words and, and read all the various, uh, you know, interpretations and try and connect through because, uh, you know, the Quran, month of Ramadan is in which the Quran was revealed. So Quran is, is, shows us guidance shows us what is right from wrong and uh, and we need that guidance so connecting with Allah through the Quran is 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 the best way and mashallah as you said um, about using the best of online technology for the sake of pleasing Allah there are a lot of um, classes that are going to be happening online for the tafsir of the Quran to be able to keep that connection even if you yourself maybe don't have that much knowledge on it that people can access these things now online oh, absolutely I pondered a lot on this issue and sometimes I think we're now at this stage made to reflect on uh, a lot of the time our relationship in Ramadan has been with mustards with mm. congregating with family and friends but as you said actually this year we're now forced to reflect and if we are, you know, partaking in Ramadan because we love Allah, the masjids are closed, but mm. Allah is wherever we are. Mm. Therefore, it's that having that moment of sincerity where you're in privacy mm. with Allah only could potentially be worth so much more mm. than being in the masjids and being slightly distracted. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we forget sometimes that we are spending so much time eating food, um, you know, meeting our friends in in the mosques, and that 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 we are not spending as much time on our own that we need to, um, and and you know, really, truly, truly connect is is to is you know is to develop taqwa in ourselves, um, and 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 be grateful. That's what Allah wants us to do. I mean, the ayahs in the Quran are from I think it's in in, in Baqarah chapter two from one eight three to one eight seven are are really sort of giving us that crux of what Ramadan is about and which is 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 to develop taqwa to 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 be grateful to to connect with the Quran because in all these eyes uh, um, it mentions those things and 
look into those eyes. What is it asking us to do? And, and then from there, learn and uh, reflect. What is the one thing in the world that you would like to see change in your lifetime? Well, to appreciate the beauty of the Quran. I would love people to understand how beautiful it is and how it can change your life for the better. And um, I would like to teach people so they can see that beauty of the Quran, inshallah. Inshallah. And where could they access um, your contact details, for example, if they had any questions or to learn from your teachings? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to be contacted through the um it, it, people can just sort of google me um can contact me via that or or um i mean people i've often have been contacted people have just googled me and found me somehow and contacted me so um i have a, i have an email that can uh, find through the those various channels um inshallah jazakallah dr amra brown for joining us today it's been an absolute pleasure and very, very insightful. May Allah reward you, family, and, and your father. May Allah have mercy on him. Ameen. Jazakallah khair for inviting me to talk to yourselves. And may Allah bless you and your work. And maybe it, it, it will help people to understand Islam better and, um, and have the love of the Quran that I feel deeply in my heart. Um, bless you all. Jazakallah khair. I'm sure you'll all agree that Dr. Bone has enlightened us with her knowledge on marriage, divorce, and the important role that Sharia councils serve. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless her and her family and give her much reward for her invaluable work. Amin. Inshallah, we hope you found listening to this podcast both useful and engaging. We can't wait to welcome you again for another one of our Muslim voices. Please do remember to subscribe to us with your podcast provider and follow us on Atmed Community and at Muslimah Voices on social media. Muslimah Voices.